0: So take your Bibles and and turn to Ephesians chapter 6 and we will reread our text. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6, um, starting in verse 10 and we'll be reading through verse 17. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm Thank you for giving it to us and preserving it for us and opening up our minds to understand it and helping us apply it to our lives. And so Lord, this is a crucial piece of armor and we need to understand it this morning. And so again, would your spirit illuminate us, uh, give us understanding, and most of all help us to uh, put it into practice uh, in our lives. Lord, this may be the most familiar of the pieces of armor, but maybe the most um, unused and uh, the one that uh, maybe we have the hardest time uh, putting, uh, making application of in our lives. So would you help us um, really take it to the next level this morning in our sanctification for your glory in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we know that throughout the Scriptures, the Bible, or God's Word, is likened to a number of things. It's likened to food. 1 Peter 2.2, two, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word so that you may grow in respect to salvation. So that, you, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. It's also likened to a, a lamp. We already uh, read this verse this morning in our scripture reading in prayer time, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's also likened to fire. Jeremiah chapter five, verse 14, behold, I am making my words in your mouth fire and this people would and it will consume them. Also in Jeremiah, uh, God likens uh, his word to a hammer. He said, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? And of course, we know that God's word is likened to seed in the scriptures. The parable of the soils would be probably the one that we think of first, but 1 Peter 1.23 says, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. It's also likened to a mirror, James 1, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does." And then finally, we know God's word is likened to a sword. Hebrews chapter four, verse 12, love this verse. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The only other time in the Bible where God's word is likened to a sword is here in Ephesians chapter 6, where Paul was describing the the spiritual armor that God has provided every believer so we're able to stand firm against the attacks of Satan. And he was using the imagery of a Roman soldier here suited up for battle to explain that the six pieces of protective gear uh, essential for our survival amid the relentless onslaught of enemy forces... And as I mentioned at the beginning of uh, of this series, Paul was writing metaphorically here, or figuratively, and that's why the armor of God can seem nebulous at first, and it's not super clear what these six things Paul mentioned actually represent in our lives. But when he got to the last piece of armor, the sword of the Spirit, he explained exactly what it represented. He left no doubt. And I think of all the pieces of armor he mentioned, none is more clear than this one because none is more crucial for victory than the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And this is no ordinary sword. It's the most powerful weapon in the universe and the devil and the demons are no match for it. It is a supernaturally forged double-edged blade in which the duel unparalleled powers of God's spirit and God's word converge to make the one wielding it invincible. It's even more powerful than Thor's hammer. I know that's hard to believe. But the imagery, right, of the, the, the how intense and how electrifying that hammer is in Thor's hand, right? Well, this sword, the sword of the spirit is even more radical more powerful more invincible and as long as it remains firmly in our grip we'll be able to withstand the the severest and most savage spiritual attacks now obviously paul was referencing here a roman's a roman soldier's main weapon that he carried with him into battle um, this was not the Roman broadsword, right, that you would use with two hands necessarily and uh, and you just kind of flail around on the battlefield hoping to inflict some kind of, you know, just one of these things, hoping to inflict some kind of damage. No, it was a small, double-edged sword about eight to 19 inches in length. This is it right here, the machaira. And this was specifically designed for hand-to-hand combat and enabled a a soldier to fight with great accuracy and with great precision. And so Paul calls it here, he says, the sword of the spirit. God has given us a a spiritual sword to use in battle against Satan. It's the spirit-inspired word of God. And I think it's interesting that Paul referred to it as the sword of the Spirit. In other words, it's not your sword, first and foremost, it's whose sword? It's the Spirit's sword. Because God's Spirit is the one responsible for God's word. First of all, he inspired it, right? The Holy Spirit is the one responsible for producing God's word. The, The Bible originated with the Holy Spirit, uh, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. Some familiar verses where we come up with our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture. This is 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 16. All scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that in so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. And then over in Second Peter, Second Peter chapter one, we have a little uh, color commentary, if you will, on uh, the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, this is Second Peter chapter one, verse nineteen. Peter says, "We have the prophetic word made more sure in comparison to the visual word. I heard. I actually heard an audible voice." from God, God's voice saying, this is my son, my beloved son, right? Uh, when they were on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, he heard this uh, and he says, but guess what? Uh, I got, you, we got something better. Then the audible voice of God coming from heaven is the prophetic word. He's talking about the scriptures to which you do well to pay attention to as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Verse 20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. Really, what he's talking about there is more inspiration, And we know that because of the next verse. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, men wrote the Bible, but it was the Spirit of God who was uh, overseeing what they wrote. He was dictating to them what he wanted written. And so we know that the Holy Spirit is the one responsible for inspiring the scriptures, but he also illuminates the scriptures. He's the one responsible for making God's word understandable and, and, and usable. And if you remember when Je- Jesus uh, was telling his disciples that he was about to return to heaven, and they didn't like the sound of that, and they protested, he said, no, 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 guys, you don't understand. It's better that I go back to heaven because then I can send the helper. And you need help, (laughs) okay? And that helper, of course, was the Holy Spirit. And he defined the specific role that the Spirit would play. John 14, verse 26, he says, "But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. And then in chapter 16, verse 13, he says, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And then 1 John, John continues um, writing about the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. 1 John chapter 2, verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, or excuse me, from, from the Holy One, and you all know, verse 27, as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him, talking about the Holy Spirit here, abides in you, and you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things. And it's true and it's not a lie and just as it is taught you, you abide in him. And maybe the the clearest passage in the New Testament about the illuminating work of the spirit is 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11, for who among you knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? If so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God so that we may know the things freely given to us by God which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom but in those taught by the spirit combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Here it is. But a natural man... In other words, someone that does not have the Spirit of God in them, an unregenerate man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. In other words, that's why maybe some of your testimony includes a season in your life where you had a copy of God's Word and you had read it and, and you studied it, but it really kind of was just going in one ear and out the other. Uh, maybe it was the, the, the seed was falling on, you know, the road, right? And Satan would just come and swoop down and like the birds and take it away because you, you didn't have a regenerate heart. You didn't have the Spirit of God in you. And so we, we, we Paul's referring to this here, the, the, the sword of the Spirit, because uh, he inspired it and he illuminates it. Um, but then notice, again, he goes on and actually defines this piece of armor. And this is the first and only time he does that, uh, as specific at least in verse 17. He says, this is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Interesting here, Paul did not use the, the, the general word for uh, the word, which is logos, typically when the, when the word word uh, is used talking about the Bible or the the whole counsel of of, of God. Uh, it, it's used, the word is logos. Here is the the word here is rhema, which is the rhema of God. Uh, rhema refers to again not just the the whole of Scripture, and that's logos. Rama refers to a saying or utterance or or a spoken word. Now some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this word. Uh, you've heard it, you've seen it, maybe in the names of different ministries, um, uh, Rama this, Rama that, and uh, and I say that because I think it's int- it's important for for you to understand that some charismatics view Rama as the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to them at the present moment, and they believe that they they should be guided by the Holy Spirit through inner feelings impressions, experiences. Uh, some believe that the direct words of God to the individual can be imparted through the words of others, in fact, that God's gonna speak to you through someone else. He's gonna give you a rhema word, if you will. Uh, just uh, maybe such a, uh, maybe maybe I'm gonna be used of God today to speak to you, uh, maybe a friend after church. Um, and again, through, through these avenues, Uh, they believe that the Christian experiences God's direct leading. And again, that's very subjective, that's very mystical, that's very scary because that could lead you all sorts of places. God told me this, right? Well, unless you can back what God told you from the Bible, right, don't follow that. Even if you think somebody told you uh, something that was God speaking to you, well, perhaps God was using that person to remind you of a verse, or a passage, or a principle in scripture. I think God does speak to us through other people, again, if, it's, if the conversation is biblical, if the conversation is, 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 uh, is, is, uh, in, is, scripture is included in that conversation. And so I would submit to you here that a rhema word, okay, uh, this saying or utterance or spoken word, um, it is a particular verse or portion of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to our attention that best applies to our current situation. Maybe it's a need for direction or maybe we need to resist temptation, okay? So let me say that again. So what is this rhema? What does he mean? This is the sword of the Spirit, the word of God. Um, this, this is a, the Spirit of God bringing to mind a particular verse, or portion of scripture that most specifically applies to our situation, whatever the need of the moment is. Matthew 4, 4, you remember, Jesus said, it was written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, by the way, he uses the word rhema there, on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Well, if Jesus used that same rhema, term, perhaps that's where we should go to discern what Paul had in mind here. And so again, we go back to Luke four, uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, this is where we were last Sunday, right? We said no, uh, no series on, the, on spiritual warfare is complete without looking at the temptation of Christ uh, in the wilderness. But I think what Paul had in mind here was perfectly modeled by our Lord's skillful use of the word to defeat the devil when he was tempted in the wilderness. And again, Jesus responded to all three temptations in exactly the same way by quoting a Bible verse. It is what? Written. It is written. It is written. And I think we need to see here, and again, we just reminding you of last week, Jesus didn't just quote some random verses. But he quoted ones that applied directly to the specific temptation he was facing at the time and were custom designed to repel Satan's attacks. And if you remember, he was quoting from a passage in the Old Testament. Anybody remember what passage that was? Deuteronomy chapter 8. Go back there just for a moment. Exodus, Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 8, he quoted verse 3, and uh, he also quoted uh, chapter, six, chapter 6, verses 13 through 16. Well, the point is, what was happening here in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the second law. It's when the, the nation of Israel was standing on the east bank of the Jordan River, ready to enter the promised land, and Moses was reviewing the past 40 years where they wandered in the wilderness, and uh, he was urging them to obey by reminding them of all he had done for them and, and commanded them uh, while, he w- while the, their, their parents, if you will, uh, were in the wilderness, wandering waiting to come to the promised land. And so Deuteronomy chapter eight, verses one through three. Moses says, all the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years That he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. You tell me, is that not a perfect description of what was going on in the wilderness during those 40 days? That when Jesus was being tested to see what was in his heart, whether he would keep God's commandments or not? Verse 3 He humbled you and let you be hungry. Isn't it not exactly what was going on to Jesus? Which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So I'm simply pointing out that that Christ's 40 days in the wilderness in many ways resembled Israel's 40 years in the wilderness. And I would submit to you that Jesus was meditating on this section of scripture while he wandered in the wilderness. Because when Satan tempted him, he immediately quoted from this section of scripture and the repeated sword thrusts of God's word sent Satan running. And again, this is Jesus, God in a human body, I mentioned this last Sunday, but it's worth repeating that he had all the power and authority in the universe at his fingertips to use against Satan and against temptation, but he didn't use any of these resources. He used the one resource available to all of us. He used God's word. Plain and simple. But I will say this, God's word is useless in the fight against Satan, unless we know, not only do we know the word, but we know how to apply it to particular situations and problems and temptations in our lives. I mean, some of us, right, have been going to church our entire lives. We've memorized tons of verses. You might have trophies and patches to prove it, right? Then why are you still being defeated by Satan on a regular basis? Why does it seem you can't even ward off the most basic attacks? You keep giving in to the same temptations on a daily, weekly basis. It's not that you don't have a sword, it's just that you don't know how to use it skillfully. You may have watched the movie The Mask of Zorro, and when Zorro finds um, uh, his young apprentice drunk in a Bar, um, he gets into a, a sword fight with him and after he defeats him, humbles him, shames him, he says, do you even know how to use that thing? And he looked at it and he goes, yeah, the pointy end goes into the other man. Well, in other words, he didn't really have a knowledge of how to fight. And so Zorro spent Days and months training him to be a master swordsman. And the point is, it won't do any good just to kind of to wave your Bible around at Satan. Oh, there he is. Right, that's not gonna do anything. The, the key to overcoming temptation is learning how to handle God's word with precision. Just like Jesus, we need to be able to use uh, the verse or verses that are most applicable to the need of the moment which means that we need to know specific verses and passages and how they apply to specific situations and temptations. One of the things that has helped me over the years um, to learn how to apply scripture to my own life uh, is being trained in biblical counseling, believe it or not. Being trained how to counsel others in God's word. You can't help but see yourself and all of that training and you just come back to yourself over and over and over again Well, he's describing me oh that sounds like my heart and those are the idols I worship and 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 this is the verse that applies to that and and next thing you know you're counseling yourself and I think that's the key to being a good counselor is that you've already uh, you're already already in the habit of counseling yourself with the scriptures and, and you've learned where those verses are that apply to your sins your struggles and you're seeking to make application of those verses in your life, and so therefore you're able to help others do the same. Wayne Mack, who I had the privilege of sitting under, one of the fathers of biblical counseling, um, he wrote a book called Introduction to Biblical Counseling, and this is what he says here. I love this analogy. Quote, the Bible is God's fully furnished medicine cabinet. It contains the remedy for all the spiritual problems we face in life. But just as no one, excuse me, but just as no one medicine will cure all of our physical problems, so no one passage in the word of God will cure all of our spiritual problems. A good physician or pharmacist has to know which medicine to use for each health problem, and biblical counselors must know what portions of the word of God to apply to each counselee's problem. Therefore, in order to be effective, a biblical counselor must have a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. In other words, if you went to your doctor because you, something was bothering you, you were sick, you didn't know what it was, and every time he simply said, take two aspirin and see me next week, like everything, no matter what it was, take two aspirin and see me next week, you'd be like, um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how confident I am with your knowledge of medicine and what, are you really asking the appropriate questions and diagnosing my situation, Right? Uh, don't we all appreciate when a good doctor asks some really good questions and, and, and you, you have the confidence he's made an accurate diagnosis and he whips out his little pad and he just quickly right scribbles down some things and just rips it off and says, here, take this to, to Walgreens. And you have no idea what you're taking. You're just trusting that that guy was listening in class, right, and uh, he learned what he needed to learn. But it's amazing that they just know exactly what, antibiotic or antiviral, whatever, you you need to take to specifically address that specific ailment that you're struggling with at 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 that time. And it's not the same every time. So if we're to stand firm against Satan, we must have a skillful working knowledge of Scripture. We should know God's word so well that it becomes part of us. I love Pilgrim's Progress, you know I quote from it often. Uh, This is a a quote from the second part. Uh, Most of us know Pilgrim's Progress, right, the story of Christian fleeing the sea of destruction, going to the celestial city, uh, an analogy of the Christian life, right, Uh, escaping from hell through the gospel and, and heading towards heaven. Well, if you know the story, Uh, Christian originally set out without his wife and kids. He was so under conviction about his sin uh, and and he pleaded with his family to come with him and they didn't follow him and so he went alone. And then there's a second part to the story that Bunyan added where Christian's wife, Christiana, follows her husband, gets saved, and then follows her journey uh, to get to heaven. So uh, this is book two of the Pilgrim's Progress. And uh, in, as, uh, along her way, uh, along the way of her journey, uh, she and uh, someone she's traveling with, Mr. Greatheart, come upon a character named Valiant for Truth. And I love just the imagery here. Imagine you walk around a corner on your journey and there stood a man with his sword drawn and his face all bloody. Mr. Greatheart said, What art thou? The man made answer, saying, I am one whose name is Valiant for Truth. I am a pilgrim and I am going to the celestial city. Now, as I was on my way, there were three men who beset me. These three men, they were named Wildhead, Inconsiderate, and Pragmatic, drew upon me and I also drew upon them. In other words, the swords came out. You want to go? Let's go. And so we fell to it. One against three for the space of about three hours. They have left upon me, as you see, some of the marks of their valor and have also carried away with them some of mine. Greatheart says, "But here was great odds, three against one." Valiant said, "Tis true, but little and more are nothing to him that has the truth on his side." Greatheart said, "Why did you not cry out that some might have come in for succor or to some come to support you?" Valiant said, "I did to my king, who I knew could hear and afford invisible help, and that has been sufficient for me." Greatheart said. Um, thou hast worthily behaved thyself, let me see thy sword. So he showed it to him when he had taken it in his hand and he looked there on a while, he said ha, it's a right Jerusalem blade. Valiant said it is so, let a man have one of these blades with a hand to wield it and skill to use it and he may venture upon an angel with it. He need not fear its holding, but he can but tell how to lay on, it ed- its edges will never blunt, it will cut flesh and bones and soul and spirit and all. And Great Heart says, you have fought a great while. I wonder you were not weary. And then I love how this dialogue ends. Valiant says, I fought till my sword did cleave to my hand. And then when, and when they were joined together, as if a sword grew out of my arm, and when the blood ran through my fingers and I fought with most courage. That's such a cool imagery. So the question is, how do we take up the sword of the Spirit? How do we get a better grasp of God's truth? How do we tighten our grip on his word so we can fight like valiant for truth, like it's as if the sword is just an extension of our arm? That's how well we wield it. Let me give you a few practical points here at the end uh, by way of application, and I've tried to do this every Wednesday night, is just say, okay, practically, what does this look like? How, How do we put this into practice? Number one, I would suggest that you remember that the Word and the Spirit are inseparable. The Word and the Spirit are inseparable. If we go back to the middle of Ephesians, uh, well, I just, I should say back a chapter. Maybe it's even on the same page. You're there in Ephesians 6 already. Look at Ephesians 5.18, very familiar verse. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, or be controlled by the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Holy Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So how do you know if you're filled with the Spirit? Well, number one, you're gonna be Uh, joyful um, singing you're going to be thankful and by the way verse 21 and be subject to one another and the fear lord you'll be submissive now jump over to colossians really quick i want you to see a comparison here colossians chapter 3 verse 16 paul says let the word of christ richly dwell within you So in Ephesians 5, he's saying, hey, the Holy Spirit needs to dwell within you. You need to be controlled, filled with the Holy Spirit. Essentially, saying the same thing, right? Now he's saying the same is true of the word of Christ, that you need to let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And you say, well, how do you know that that's happening. Well, notice the fruit. With all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And does that anything sound familiar there? In other words, the same, the same fruit, right, uh, being filled with the Spirit produces the same fruit as being filled with or being uh, controlled by the word of God, letting the word of Christ which you dwell within you. So being filled, what I conclude from that is being filled with the Holy Spirit is synonymous with being filled with the word of God. You can't have one without the other. And so therefore, we need to stay in step with the Spirit. If we wanna use his sword... It's his sword, right? We need to stay in step with the Spirit. Again, Galatians 5:16, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And that whole section there talks about what happens if we uh, live according to the Spirit. In other words, we surrender our lives, yield our lives to the Spirit, or we yield to our flesh. The results, the fruit of those things. And my point is that when we get out of step with the Spirit. And we do our own thing. We know that that grieves the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 4.30, or it quenches the Holy Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. So we have a relationship with a person, the third member of the Trinity, he's a person, right? The Holy Spirit, and he's he gets grieved, he gets quenched And so if we're not walking in the Spirit, we're not keeping in step with the Spirit, and we're grieving Him, or we're quenching Him, we shouldn't expect Him to illuminate us or strengthen us through His Word, or or to empower and enable us as we seek to make use of it to do battle with Satan. And we also know we cannot conquer or mortify sins in our lives without the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter eight, verse 13 says that. If you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh, or excuse me, the deeds of the body, you will live. I love how graphic Spurgeon was. He said this, Quote, fight with your sins, hack them in pieces as Samuel did Agag, let not one of them escape, take them as Elijah took the prophets of Baal, hew them in pieces before the Lord. But again, our relationship with God's word coincides with our relationship with God's spirit. So evaluate how you're doing in regards to your relationship with the the spirit of God. Because if it's if your relationship with the Spirit of God is not right, you're grieving him, you're offending him if you will you're you're quenching him then then he's he's, he's going to be no help to you when it comes to an attack, and you're like you go reaching for the sword and you're you're right you's like where's my sword i'm not implying that the spirit of God leaves you hanging right when you need him most but Make sure you're maintaining your relationship with the Spirit of God uh, because uh, without that, we will never skillfully be able to wield the Word of God. So remember the Word and the Spirit are inseparable. Number two, read the Word. How's that for something very basic, right? Read the Word. Spend time in God's Word. Just a few verses, let me remind you of Job 23 verse 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. In the same way that you need daily nutrition, uh, you need to eat to survive, you need to eat the word of God, you need spiritual nutrition. Um, we, We also read this verse already. Uh, this morning in our scripture reading and prayer Psalm one nineteen uh, one oh three How sweet are your words to my taste yes sweeter than honey to my mouth um, Prophet Jeremiah Jeremiah fifteen sixteen again these are familiar verses I'm sure your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart And then maybe just one more, Romans 15.4. Romans 15.4 says this, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. So read God's word on a daily basis. Take it in. Don't just randomly read the Bible. Don't do the... Don't do the lucky dip thing like, well, where should I read this morning? Just throw your Bible open and do one of these deals. Be very deliberate. Be very intentional. Study the scripture systematically. Work through it in a, in a, in a, in a verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book way, um, and, 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 and mark it up as you go. Um, if you want to know what that looks like, go ask Kyle to open up his Bible and show you his Bible. I love it every time I'm in Kyle's presence and he opens his Bible, man. It's just like stuff all over the place marked up. And, you know, wherever he's been reading, it's just, you can tell, there's tracks. He's left tracks. So just mark it up and, and really study it. So read the word of God. Number three, meditate on the word of God. Meditate on word on the word of God. Joshua chapter one, verse eight, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will will have success. And then of course, Psalm one, classic passage about meditation how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord and his law he meditates day and night he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither and in whatever he does he prospers so in other words this is like taking reading to the next level and, and how many of us are guilty of you know grabbing a few minutes in God's word in the morning that's good then we just uh, kind of you know, close up our Bibles and we head off to our day and we never once think about what we read until we get back there the next morning to the next chapter or the next section. That's not profitable, right? You can't just, oh, I read my Bible, check, I'm good to go. No, you read your Bible in the morning so that you have something to think about throughout the day, something to meditate on. And I think the main reason why so many Christians who are regularly exposed to Scripture, they read it, they hear it through preaching, they're even convicted by Scripture, but they never change. Why? Because they don't take the time to think through specific things they need to change as a result of what they've read or heard. Donald Whitney, who last time he was here, told us he's um, actually writing a book on meditation on the spiritual discipline of meditation, because he feels like it's kind of the lost, um, the lost uh, art, if you will, in, in Christianity. But this is what he said in his previous work, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. He said, deep thinking on the truths of Scripture is the key to putting them into practice. It is by means, it is by means of meditation that the facts of biblical information are fleshed out into practical application. The way to determine how any scripture applies to the concrete situations of life is to meditate on that scripture. So really, meditation is the bridge between knowing what the Bible says, okay, I see it, I read it, I heard it, now how do I live it out? Well, there's a bridge you've got to walk over between the hearing and the living, and that's called meditation. You've got to think through it. And again, it's just meditation. What are we talking about? We're not sitting about crossing your legs and doing this and humming, okay? We're, we're talking about filling your, you know, the world's way of meditation is, 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 is removing everything from your mind. No, what we're saying is fill your mind with a truth from God's word, a verse, a phrase, a, a passage, a principle, and, and just think long and hard about it. And mull it over in your mind like a cow chewing its cud, or like a kind of you, those of you that like to drink tea, right? You soak that bag uh, in water so it just pulls out all that, that, uh, that flavor. So we need to learn how to meditate, not just read the word, but meditate on the word. And then, fourthly, we need to memorize the word. We need to memorize God's word. Psalm 119, again. We're reading through this this summer. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Uh, verse uh, 11, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So we need to memorize verses about the general nature of sin and temptation. Like Numbers thirty-two twenty-three. be sure your sin will what? Find you out. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 10.13, no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with every temptation, he'll provide a way of escape so you can endure it. You need to know that verse. You need to maybe memorize James chapter one. That was the passage that we studied a couple weeks ago. Each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when the sin is accomplished, it gives, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brother. That'd be a good one to memorize. So memorize general verses, but also memorize specific verses. Verses about specific sins and temptations. For example, anger. You may want to memorize James 1:19. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak and slow to anger for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. That'd be a good one if you struggle with anger. How about if you worry? Philippians 4, 6. Be anxious for nothing but with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace that passes all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4. This would be one uh, for those of you that struggle with lust, sexual sin. 1 Thessalonians 4, Three, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual morality. The whole passage there you can memorize. Or perhaps if you struggle with laziness, um, 1 Corinthians 9 would be appropriate. Um, Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Or 1 Timothy 4, 7, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Perhaps you struggle with pride. Uh, Pride is your uh, sin struggle. 1 Peter chapter five, verse five. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. That's a good one. Or materialism. Um, Matthew chapter six. Memorize that passage about laying up your treasure in heaven. That that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. The, The point is, um, write out your top five sins. I mean, we're talking about getting very practical. Your top five sins, or top three sins, or your biggest sin. And just let's start there. Just your biggest sin. Where, where does Satan get you most often? And then define what that is. And then go to God's Word and find verses that talk about that particular sin. And a, and a place to start is, you got this thing in the back of your Bible, you might even not, not even know it's there, it's called a concordance, okay? A concordance, and what, what is it? It's a, it's a list of uh, words and, and where they're found. So if you're saying, man, my struggle is of pride, well, go to the P section of your concordance and look up all the verses under pride, and, and pick the one that you think is the most encouraging, the most challenging, the most convicting, and say, that's the one I'm going to memorize. And you begin to put it to memory. Put it on an index card, put it on your phone, whatever, however it helps you, and, and you just begin to, to memorize scripture. If you wanna go deeper, there's other references like this little resource I would recommend. It's called Quick Reference, A Quick Scripture Reference for Counseling by John Cruz. And again, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a concordance on steroids. Uh, and it has all the verses actually written out so it's easy just to go find, you know, pride, for example, and, uh, and read all the verses are already just written out here. It's a great tool, not just for you uh, counseling someone else, but for you to counsel uh, yourself. The point is, we need to counter Satan's lies with God's truth. It's, it's really swordplay. And and the men might remember this when my friend Phil Mosier came a couple years ago for our man con and and he had us come up and he had two swords and he picked one of us and and, and he would tell us to to maybe speak some kind of lie of Satan. And and as soon as we did that, he he told us to engage him with the sword and he took a sword out and he engaged us back with verses and he was quoting scripture. And and we did this, uh, I, I noticed Chris and Eric did this with the kids at kids camp. They had them come up and quote their verse, but they had these little um, floaty things. They weren't using real swords, right? Parents just want to you know, we, we didn't put, put real swords in your kids' hands. Little floaty things, swords, right? Little sabers, teaching them that this is what it looks like practically. It's sword play. And so memorizing verses is really like just stockpiling weapons and ammo that the spirit can access in the moments of temptation. And so the more verses that we memorize, the larger our arsenal, and no matter what weapons the enemy uses against us, we always have something bigger and better to defend ourselves with. Like the scene in Crocodile Dundee, right? When the punk kids came and jumped the guy with the switchblade, and he goes, you call that a knife? <laughs> and he pulled out this big old bowie knife, as we would know in Australia, and they were like, well, and they took off running. I mean, that's that's how it should look every time we're attacked by Satan. We pull something that's way better, way bigger, way scarier looking than anything he's got come. So we need to load our minds with Scripture and fill our hearts with Scripture and saturate our lives with Scripture until our blood becomes, as Spurgeon said, bibline. That no matter where the enemy cuts you, you bleed the Bible. I promised you last Sunday that I had a surprise for you this past Wednesday, something that I think might encourage you uh, and excite you and motivate you, and that is uh, several months ago, uh, a guy in our church, some of you guys know Matthew Wilkins, uh, love that guy, he's just been a blessing. Uh, In fact, he's actually given Paul Tripp a run for his money with his mustache, if you haven't noticed that. Um, And, uh, but uh, anyway, he said, hey, Ken, you know, God's just given me a burden about scripture memory, and I just haven't been doing it for a while, and I want to do it better, and I'm I'm taking my kids through something right now. It's called the Navigator's Topical Memory System, and if any of you guys know about the Navigators, they were the ones, I mean, that's what they're known for, uh, is is scripture memory, and and getting the sailors waiting in line for chow on the boat, right? What are you going to do while you're standing waiting in line? Well, you got these little scripture memory cards. You just kind of go through your scripture, your memorized verses, right? You got your little verse pack, um, and, and I cut my teeth on this kind of scripture memory plan in college and it was amazing how many verses I was able to store away in my heart and mind just by getting these little cards and just when I had a little free moment and I'd just be reading those and memorizing those and then reviewing those. And so anyway, we were able to find, um, so he just said, he said three months ago, hey, if you ever think of how that might be useful in the life of our church, let, let me know. I said, okay, I'll store that away. Well, when we got to this section, Of the armor of god i thought matthew wilkins he said he had a heart for scripture memory so we talked and we were able to find this navigator's topical memory system half price 10 bucks okay we bought 75 of these suckers Uh, they're over in the resource center and uh matt is willing to kind of put pull together a little team a club if you will a scripture memory club i don't know what they're gonna call it fight club maybe i like that fight club Um, But uh, you got this little club where you can buy one of these topical memory systems from the resource center. There's a sign-up sheet out in the foyer over here. Matt's going to be out there if you want to talk to him afterwards. Uh, But basically just maybe, uh, you know, a half hour a week, maybe right before or after church where you just come together uh, for a few minutes and and, and quote verses to one another. And and just kind of have some accountability, some encouragement and something that's not easy to do. And uh, if you've never memorized scripture before, um, I couldn't commend anything more highly than this right here to help you get into the habit, the discipline of memorizing scripture. So these will be available after church. Again, if you're interested, you can sign up, talk to Matthew about that. I'm excited to see what the Lord's gonna do. And then finally, I think we have to add this. We've been adding it every time. It's pray the word. Pray the word. Um, in other words, pray the word back to the Lord. And again, we're gonna get this next week with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the spirit, right? What would the prayer be? God, thank you for providing me with such an effective weapon. Help me to learn how to wield the word skillfully and specifically against temptation and sin. As I was thinking through this this week, had a little extra time, obviously, um, had a few more days uh, to, to think it through. Um, I w- was reminded of a hymn that Paul Tripp used in at the very end of "Do You Believe," the book we just got done reading through with the Men in Iron Men. And the hymn is called "Your Word is like a Garden Lord." Old hymn, 1800s. A guy named Edwin Hodder wrote this hymn about God's word. It's interesting. He utilized a a series of similes to illustrate the value of the word of God in our lives. And he he describes um, in the first verse uh, how God's word is like a garden um, and, and a mine to show us how God's word is like beautiful, fragrant flowers that can be picked by anyone as well as like a deep mind where precious jewels can be found, so flowers are all around us and, and anyone can go pick them as they want, but precious jewels required hard work to find. So you got a little of both in Scripture, right? Um, it's the same with God's Word. There are simple truths on the surface that are easily accessible, easily picked, if you will, but others require a level of spiritual maturity to understand and a dedication to study and meditate on God's Word. This is what he said wrote, thy word is like a garden lord with flowers bright and fair and everyone who seeks may pluck a lovely cluster there. Thy word is like a deep, deep mine and jewels rich and fair, rare are hidden in its mighty depths for every searcher there. And then he goes on to the second verse. Um, he used another set of comparisons. Now he likened the Bible to glittering lights like the stars, uh, giving a traveler uh, help on his way and then, to our subject like an armory where a soldier can be equipped to fight the battle for truth and righteousness. He, he wrote this, the second verse, thy word is like a starry host, a thousand rays of light are seen to guide the traveler and make his pathway bright. And here it is, thy word is like an armory where soldiers may repair and find for life's long battle day all needful weapons there. And then the third verse is just a prayer of dedication. He says, oh, may I love thy precious word. May I explore the mind. May may I its fragrant flowers glean. May light upon me shine. And I love this last part. Oh, may I find my armor there. Thy word, my trusty sword. I'll learn to fight with every foe. The battle of the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this opportunity to talk about the sword of the Spirit. And it seems like we're just scratching the surface. There's so much more we could talk about, but hopefully this is enough today to get us excited about this weapon that you've provided each and every one of us and that we would wanna get really good with how to use it. And so would that just motivate us, Lord? To, like, for example, tomorrow morning we wake up that it's not just, oh, I gotta read my Bible so I can check it off. No, I gotta find... I gotta find some some bullets here. I need some arrows. Uh, I need some ammunition uh, for for the battle today. And so, Lord, that we would look at Scripture as this armory that uh, that we can access um, everything we need to be successful in our fight against uh, Satan and his his minions. And so, Lord, uh, I pray you'd bless this 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 Scripture memory club, Lord, that many would just be convicted about the need to to put scripture to memory, uh, to to memorize it, to put it to heart, and uh, that you would give Matthew wisdom to how to best facilitate all that, just to provide some encouragement, some accountability for those of us that want to be faithful uh, to apply this message in this way. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.